Good day, everybody. This is Brandon with 238 Media. I just wanted to make sure I took some time to let you know about this great tool that helps me to keep my podcast moving at a really good rate of production. This tool is Anchor by Spotify, and it is probably one of the easiest ways to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record your podcast right from your phone or computer. And when hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a host of other options. It's everything you need in one place to make a podcast. And best of all, it is 100% free. So, hey, let me know what you think. And as always, it's the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. Good day, everybody. This is Brandon with 238 Media. Today I'm doing an episode that's going to be centered around a lot of introductory material concerning the concept of what many call canonicism. Now, usually when you hear the subject referenced alone by itself, most call it uh, kenosis. Now, the word kenosis uh, comes from the word uh, that's seen in Philippians, the second chapter, the second, seventh verse. And it's in the phrase uh, in Philippians two and seven, the Carmen Christi, where it says that Jesus emptied himself. Now, in the actual Greek form, now kenosis would be more of the lexical form. But the actual word that's referenced there is ekonosin. Uh, which which is a noun, which in the technical term that people usually correlate with the humiliation of the son. But over the course of time, many who are what you would consider analytical, Christological um, uh, students of scripture uh, around the late 19th century have formulated the idea that is is essentially God emptying himself of some form of divine attributes. Now, there are several issues with this. If one is going to dogmatically hold to the principle of God's immutability, and when we say immutability, we are in essence referring to the fact or the reality that God within his divine nature does not change. This will present itself to be a problem, needless to say. Because what we have within canonicism, uh, as it is called in some places, that God essentially is changing. And uh, one of the things that I, I would consider it a, an, an essential aspect of who God is, is that the very fact that he doesn't change, I would consider change in his essence or changing of essence to be something that you would see uh, more akin to uh, something within within the creaturely category. Now, when you look at what many call the divine attributes, usually there are two categories of uh, canonicism that you normally see explored. They will usually be put in uh, the form of what some call ontological canonicism. And then the other is functional canonicism. Now, ontological uh, canonicism has a view that makes the claim that Jesus Christ actually did not have certain uh, divine properties during his earthly sojourn. 
And this is usually seen from those who approach Philippians 2 and 7 that prior to Christ coming into incarnation, he emptied certain divine attributes or components that are seen as only existing with the divine nature, thus taking on the form of a servant, which I always kind of laugh and tease that it's to me, it's kind of like an episode of uh <laughs> Uh, like, like, you know, those old school, like slim fast commercials, uh, where it's like God is, uh, taking off his size 10 divinity to fit in his size two humanity. Uh, th- this is ontological canonicism and the very word ontological deals with the reality of that. This is a change to his nature and person. Now, what is removed during this uh, form of canonicism is a removal of uh, divine attributes. Now, what some would probably call maybe a standard ontological account would maybe have God maybe removing uh, omniscience, um, maybe uh, omnipresence, something like that. It's kind of odd uh, in its case, but I did want to use this uh, a, a copy of this article. Uh, it's called and it's from the book Divinity and Humanity, uh, the Incarnation Reconsidered. And this is chapter five that really, I think, does a very fair job at, at really trying to fairly represent the nuances that are present within canonicism. Now, the author under the heading ontological canonicism, he says, we shall designate this standard ontological account and we shall see there is even stronger versions of an ontological canonicism than this, which states that the incarnation required the abdication of certain divine attributes per se. The second sort of ontological account we shall call the standard plus ontological account. This is not the same as the idea that the incarnation involved in the abdication of all divine attributes per se, the latter claim of the strong ontological account we have already rejected. To make the standard ontological account clear, this is what the author is going to go, and he uses an example of doing this I don't think I've ever seen before. He says, if Superman is subjected to the influence of green kryptonite, uh, a radioactive chunk of rock that is from his home planet uh, on Krypton, then he may lose his superhuman powers for a period uh, where this uh, were this to happen. Then Superman would actually be unable to exercise any of his Superman like capabilities uh, since due to the uh, influence of the green kryptonite, he would uh, somewhat lose his abilities. This means that either as Superman or Clark Kent, Superman is unable to act in a superhuman way for that period. Since Superman has no superhuman powers for the period of his exposure to kryptonite in a similar fashion, ontological canonic theories claim that during the period of the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity relinquishes uh, certain properties pertaining to his divinity such as omnipresence and omniscience, so that in the incarnation, the man Jesus of Nazareth is ignorant of certain things and has only a limited amount of power for the period of his life on earth. Uh, Because the divine word becomes ignorant of certain things and limited in power for this period, having abdicated the divine prerogatives of omniscience and omnipotence for the duration of the uh, incarnation. Now, okay, now 
the nerd in me is irritated by this example. Because if you're going to make the humanity somewhat like a kryptonite, that's that is problematic on so many levels. But let's just explore this. When Superman would be presented with kryptonite, you see, does this mean that he does not have the abilities anymore? Or does this mean that the abilities are suppressed? You see how that example really doesn't quite flow into the example of what canonicism, because canonicism has a connotation of emptying something. Superman is not emptying divine attributes more so than he is. His his attributes are being suppressed. This is why I think this is um, kind of problematic when you're kind of looking at some of the antological uh, analytical uh, e- examples of uh Ontological Christology in the article goes on and it's a portion it's referencing by a guy named Stephen Davis has a philosophically uh, interesting account of this standard ontological sort of canonic theory. His argument takes the following form. God has certain essential and certain contingent properties. One contingent divine properties omniscience at the incarnation. The word assumes a human nature to make the standard ontological account clear. Now, this is uh, this this is what's what's going to be interesting for the period of the incarnation. The word relinquishes certain contingent. Now, notice how we're creating these categories of divine properties, including omniscience in the incarnation. The word does not relinquish any essential divine properties. Now, he creates this category um, of what he would call essential divine properties and non-essential divine properties. And I'm not sure either way that one goes that he can exactly prove that because I would say that all properties that of the divine nature are essential. But then this goes into a, I guess, maybe you start dealing with the argument that one would call divine simplicity. Now, when you deal with canonicism and, and again, All of this is in an attempt to make sense of the humanity being incarnate in a true, uh, uh, excuse me, rather the divine nature uh, taking residence within the human nature, which I believe is biblical. But the issue is they are trying to explain how is it that Christ doesn't know and does know. And I believe this actually tilts towards the mystery first Timothy three sixteen. There is going to be a lot about how the incarnation works operationally. Well, how can I say? Uh functionally as as it relates to the mechanics of the incarnation that we really don't quite understand. Uh but this kind of tells into the other part of another form of uh canonic uh theorizing, right? You have functional canonicism which proposes that God only relinquished um, certain divine functions of deity to perform his normal task. So within this view of the incarnation, you have God uh, from eternity past, second person of the Trinity. Again, I am oneness. So I'm, 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 I'm using uh, Trinitarian literature to expose some of these thought processes. They feel that he still had the abilities, which I think that it makes a little bit more sense, but he did not use them because of his divine uh, mission, which was to humble himself and make himself like a servant. If one is going to make canonicism be about the divine nature, I would say 
as erroneous as all forms of uh, ontological canonic theory are, I would say this is the least problematic to the divine nature because at least you don't have the divine nature losing essential or non-essential attributes. What you really have is just more of a suppression, which would be more in line with the Clark Kent example, I would say. But in this reality, I think we have to deal with the process that maybe Philippians 2 is not the best proof text to prove that. Hey, and as always, look out for part two and we will have things moving shortly. Thanks.